Okay, let's get started this morning. Uh, we'll open with a word of prayer, please. Our Father, we do come before you giving you great praise and honor and glory, which is due to your holy name. Lord, we are so grateful for your scriptures and the privilege we have to look at them and to talk about them, to learn from them. We ask that your Holy Spirit would illumine our minds that we might understand the truths that we look at this morning. May you use them to impact our lives that will be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ that ultimately will bring glory to his name. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, this is week number 10 in our study in the book of Daniel, and today we'll endeavor to get finished with chapter 3. Last week we looked at the first 18 verses of Daniel chapter 3, and this is the familiar story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Um, we know these guys by their Chaldean names, which is a little surprising. Um, their um, Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but everybody knows them by their Chaldean name, so I guess that's what we'll use. Um, you remember that these three men were already very prominent leaders in the Babylonian kingdom, specifically in the Babylonian province. When David was made ruler of the Babylonian province after interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he asked that these three guys also be elevated and be the administrators of the province of Babylon. In the, so the most important province in all of Babylon, the place where the king's palace was, the center of the Babylonian kingdom, is ruled by David a Hebrew and his three Hebrew friends who were the administrators. So these guys are already in prominent positions. So when Nebuchadnezzar called for all of the leaders of the kingdom to come together and to worship the golden image that he had built, 90 feet tall, 10 feet wide. Um, so a huge golden image. Um, we don't know what it looked like, but probably um, represented Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so he wanted everybody, when the music played, to bow down. And so these th three most prominent guys in the Babylonian kingdom, along with Daniel, and I'm sure Daniel joined them, did not bow down to this statue. And so nobody willing probably to go against Daniel after the king had prostrated himself before Daniel and elevated him and made him ruler over uh, the province of Babylon, um, probably didn't want to go against Daniel. But his three friends, they did go against, and they brought charges before Nebuchadnezzar stating that these three men had not bowed down when the music played, and so they defied Nebuchadnezzar's command to do so. And so <clears throat> after it was reported to Nebuchadnezzar, he calls them to come before him, I think for a couple of reasons. One is to because they had been accused. Second, because he wanted to confirm that what they had been accused of was true. 
So he gives them an opportunity again to bow down when the music's played. And so this morning I want to pick up with what they said to him when he said, I'm going to give you this second chance. And we looked at this last week, but it's a good place for us to open, which is in verse 16 of chapter uh, 3 of the book of Daniel. So there we get the answer of these three Hebrew men back to the king after he says, I'm going to give you a second chance. So in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do, not need, you do, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So they basically say, Nebuchadnezzar, don't waste your time bringing the musicians together so that they can play the music because we're not going to do what you want us to anyway. So this is in your face as much as you could be to the leader of the world and defying his command. And you say, we really don't care what you're going to do. We're not going to obey your command. So I think this shows us a couple of things. It shows us, first of all, um, the faithfulness of these three men is every bit as strong as Daniel's faithfulness. I think we often think of them kind of secondary to Daniel. But you can see here, two Nebuchadnezzar face to face. And, and it's not like he didn't know who they were. I mean, these are the administrators of the province in which he lives. And so he knows who they are. And so he's trying to give them an opportunity to save face. And they say, we don't care. Uh, we're not going to do it. Our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to do what you say. We're, we'd rather die, basically, is what they're saying. We'd rather be thrown into the furnace and die than uh, do this false worship that you want us to. So these guys are every bit as faithful as Daniel, and they're uh, every bit as committed um, to their service of the one true God as Daniel is. We, we, they just don't get as many opportunities, but when they do get an opportunity here in the scriptures, they stand faithful, even if it's gonna cost them their lives. They stand faithful, and they, you know, we know how the story ends, but they didn't know that. So they didn't know if they were going to die or not. They had no idea if God was, certainly when they were getting thrown into the fire, they had no thought that the fire would not burn them. I mean, because the people who are with them die, and we'll see that in, this morning in the scripture. It's so hot that they don't even go into the furnace and they die. So certainly these guys anticipated dying when they were being thrown into the fire. But the Lord had other plans, but they didn't know that. They had no idea about that. And so that shows their faithfulness, that they're willing to die for, um, as opposed to performing false worship. And because, I mean, I guess in their minds, sort of in our minds, but I mean, I don't want to die but if you do die, you're going to go to be with the Lord, so it's actually better. 
And, you know, Paul wrote about that, that it's better for me to go ahead and die, but it's more expedient for you if I stay. So, um, you know, and I guess that's what their mindset was. Yeah. Simply saying to the king what they wanted to hear. And you go all the way up by the king of Naples. And there you see the division that has a consequence of even death, right? To stand rightly with the Lord or to compromise. And, and this is yet another picture over that entire history of the redeemed that yeah. shows that God's work is powerful in the hearts of and, and human beings. It, and, and it is always are you going to worship God or are you not? Um, but God never promises that those who worship him truly will not be the ones that suffer. Matter of fact, it appears to be his preference that they do suffer. Um, certainly it was in, in Jesus' life that was true. Um, you know, the antagonist against the Pharisees all the way through, they always had it in their mind to kill him and ultimately do. So there's this aspect of suffering that God uses to purify the saints. In this particular case, he didn't allow them to suffer. They, they actually prosper through all of this. But that doesn't mean he'll always do that. And it's, I think, on most occasions that he does not do that, that he allows the evil to overcome um, the saints and to cause them to suffer. So that shouldn't catch us by surprise. It's not a pleasant thought. It's not what you desire but it's often true both in the scriptures and in real life stories that we know about um, so that should be kind of our mindset it certainly was these guys mindset that they were willing to die for their faith um, so they they move on and of course nebuchadnezzar's response um, to this begins in verse 19. then nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the fire, furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire for this reason because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot the flame of the fire slew the, those men who carried up Shadrach Meshach and Abednego but these three men Shadrach Meshach and Abednego fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire still tied up Okay, so you get the picture of what goes on. First, um, Nebuchadnezzar is so angry that his face is contorted. That, I mean, he just cannot contain himself. And so, while these are his three provincial leaders, at this point, he's done with them. And so he commands the fire to be hurt, you know, turned up seven times than it's normal. Now, just so you understand, they're not actually, they, they had no gauge like we would have today, right? And you can't 
probably even make it seven times hotter than it's ever been before. So the scripture doesn't mean that he made it seven times hotter than it was. What it means is they made it as completely hot as they could. They couldn't make it any hotter than they did. That, so it's, it's not, you know, it's usually 300 degrees, so we turned it up to 2100 degrees. That's not what he's talking about. He's just saying they made it as hot as they possibly could. It's sort of like back over in chapter 1. You remember when um, Nebuchadnezzar perceived that the four Hebrew men were ten times greater than anybody else in wisdom? doesn't mean they were in order of magnitude greater. It just means they were by far better than anybody else. So those, those aren't exact numbers, and it's, it doesn't mean that they made it seven times hotter. They just made it as hot as they could. And so the, seven, the number seven in Scripture often um, references to completeness. So they made it as hot as they could possibly do. So, but it's hot enough where the guys who take them up, and apparently they went up to throw them into a shaft that probably is where um, the fuel was put into the furnace, um, that the guys who take them up there are killed either die of heat exhaustion or the flames actually incinerate them Um, because it says i mean it says the flames killed them so don't know exactly what that means but the guys who take him up there the most valiant soldiers in nebuchadnezzar's army it's probably his personal bodyguards die as they try to show throw shadrach meshach and abednego into the fire so that's how hot it is as you go up there. And so certainly the three thought they were going to perish. I mean, if the guys carrying you up there die from carrying you up there, then you're probably going to die yourself. Um, and so, you know, I, I thought about this. Why is it that they tie them up? I mean, they, they have on their cloaks. They have on their trousers, which are probably more like leggings. They have on caps, um, outer garments, and they, they tie them up. So I guess they anticipated these three guys fighting back as you try to take them up and throw them into the fire. Um, We get no description of that at all. I mean, they can't fight back because now they're tied up. And even when they fall into the fire, they're still tied up. So, um, I mean, they, they have no way to avoid going into the fire and so as the men who carry them up there die and fall, they fall into the fire. So, um, you know, it had to be kind of a strange feeling to be thrown into a furnace that's hotter than it's been before, and you don't get hot. Yeah, I mean, you, you feel nothing. So they, it has to be kind of surreal. I think about the moment it killed the men that were holding them. Yeah. Yeah, we're not, yeah, they're dying and we're not, you know, so, um, but yet they got them far enough where when they did fall, they fell into the fire. So, um, now, Nebuchadnezzar somehow, uh, as we'll see, is able to see these guys. So, I, you know, I have... I've seen pictures of what people think the furnace looks like, but we really don't know. But apparently, down on the ground level, 
there's some type of opening or a door or something where you can see through. Now, they didn't have, you know, glass like we do that can be heated and not melt and all of that. So it has to be just an opening of some sort that he could look through and see the actual burning fire. Now, you couldn't get it close to it, so you had to be pretty far away. Otherwise, you yourself would be overcome by the heat. So, but Nebuchadnezzar is able to see into this fire um, you, you think about the only person that we see talking here is Nebuchadnezzar but as soon as the three come out of the fire you have all these other guys who are there you, uh, you got precepts and governors and all these other people who inspect them so you have to believe that when Nebuchadnezzar is looking into the, the fire, that there are other people there with him, and probably those guys who accused them because they wanted to see them die because these are the rulers over them and they didn't necessarily like these new young Hebrew guys to be in charge. And so you've got to believe those guys are standing around too so they can watch them die. Um, because otherwise, I mean, that was their whole purpose in accusing them before Nebuchadnezzar, who had said that anybody who didn't bow down would be thrown into the furnace. So um, that was his, part of his command. So, but the three don't die. So verses 24 through 26 describe what does happen as they fall in. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste and he said to his high officials was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire they replied to the king certainly O king he said look I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods so Surprise, surprise, right? I mean, you have to, I mean, the furnace is hotter than it's ever been before so that he can immediately incinerate these three men. And that doesn't happen. And so the king is overcome, and, and rightly so. I mean, he can see into the fire, and these guys are just, walking around. You assume on top of the, um, the fuel for the fire, right? And they're just strolling around and there's this fourth person with them. Now, the appearance of the fourth man, as he first says, has to be vastly different from the other three because Nebuchadnezzar says, he has the appearance of a son of the gods. Now, he's talking about his plural gods, um, that he looks different, and it's so different that Nebuchadnezzar can distinguish that he looks different than the other three. So um, later he'll call him an angel of the Most High God. Um, but this could be don't know that the scripture doesn't say it but this could be a theopony where god himself 
is in the furnace with the three men. The third person, uh, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, in the furnace with him. Uh, we don't know that for a fact, but it's not a bad way to think about it because later in chapter 10 of Daniel, I believe we have another theopony where Jesus Christ is standing before Daniel and he sees them in not all his glory, but in a lot of his glory. Um, so I th it's not out of the character of the book of Daniel to think that this is a theopony, because there's another one that happens. And so Nebuchadnezzar sees it. He definitely can distinguish him, because he says he looks different. He looks like a son of the gods compared to the other three men. And so it could be an angel, but I tend to think that it's probably God himself in the furnace with these three men. I mean, Jesus Christ appears multiple times, uh, I believe, in the Old Testament. I think he's the one that wrestles with Jacob um, at the bottom of Jacob's ladder when he has the dream. Um, puts his hip out of socket by just touching it. I think that's probably Jesus Christ. Uh, certainly after his resurrection, Jesus Christ came and multiple times appeared to um, uh, Paul. I believe he was with Paul in the Arabian desert and taught him for three years. I think, uh, I, I know he does. He comes and stands beside Paul and strengthens him when he's getting ready to go before uh, the magistrate and have to give his uh, defense. Um, Jesus Christ comes and stands with him to give him support. Um, so I, I think we see this multiple times in the scripture, and I think this is one of them. I could be wrong, and I'm willing to be wrong, but um, I think this is God himself coming down to these faithful Hebrews and standing with them in the fire and protecting them from the fire. Don't know exactly how he did that. I mean, this is uh, God-created metaphysics, and so he can do whatever he wants to with the laws of physics but somehow he protected these guys. Um, it certainly had to be uh, something supernatural. Uh, it's not just that they avoided the, the hottest part of the furnace. I mean, they're, they're in the furnace. So um, God does a miracle here, and Nebuchadnezzar sees it. Now, this is the second miracle that God has done in the face of Nebuchadnezzar, revealing himself to the king that you, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar at this point has done everything he could do to kill these guys. I mean, come on. He's a furnace up as hot as it can go. His valiant soldiers die trying to throw them into the furnace, and then these guys fall into the furnace, and they're perfectly fine. And so Nebuchadnezzar clearly astounded, and he should be, and surprised and recognizing um, the, who he calls the son of the gods. So he recognizes someone comes and is protecting these guys. So amusingly, I, I think, in verses 24 through 26, then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded. Well, we read that part, 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. 
Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies, on the bodies of these three men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar sees these guys walking around in there. And he called, I mean, really? You, you've thrown guys into the furnace, and so you call for them to come out of, of the furnace. Now, this is totally unexpected, right? Um, he wants to know how did this happen. But notice what he says. He, he calls them, um, come here then, he says, Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God. So this is the second time that Nebuchadnezzar has recognized that the God of these Hebrews is greater than any other God. You remember when Daniel interpreted his dream back over in chapter 2 in verse 46, 47, the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is, a, is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. So there he acknowledged, after Daniel was able to do what nobody else could do, that Daniel's God was the God of gods and the God of Nebuchadnezzar, the God of kings. So he recognizes God for who he is. And here he calls them the servants of the Most High God. Again, recognizing that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is far superior to any other God that he worships. So God is revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, never did a man have such obvious um, revelations of the one true God. Yeah, I think that goes along with the theme of Daniel, which is God is sovereign, that he's the one who established Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who's going to tear Nebuchadnezzar down. It, it all goes into that theme of Nebuchadnezzar would not be the king of Babylon had it not been for God establishing him as such so that he could use him as his right hand to destroy the Jews and all those countries around the Jews. So, I mean, this is, I mean, that's the theme of Daniel, I believe, is that God is sovereign and that he is involved in the history of men. He is not just sitting back allowing things to unfold according to their own course. He is actively orchestrating and working and man, not manipulating, but 
using his power to cause the things that he desires to happen to happen. Yeah. Well, and, and this is the hard thing to understand, right? I mean, this is a hard doctrine, is that God is sovereign, yet man um, operates according to his own will. It's just that his will is evil. The same thing is true, by the way, in salvation, that God is sovereign in the salvation of men. People hate that doctrine. But yet it's true, yet a man cannot be saved unless he believes. But you cannot believe unless God graces you with the belief that you need to trust him. Yeah, and in Nebuchadnezzar is the opposite, but later God pours out his grace on him, I believe. And so those are hard doctrines, but they stand in, in I mean, the book of John, I believe, does probably the best job in all of Scripture to paint that picture, that these are two pillars of faith that stand side by side, that God is sovereign even in the salvation of men, but yet men act volitionally both to defy God and to believe in God. And those, that's a hard thing to ever get... And, and people wrestle with that. Well, then we're just robots doing what God made us to do. No. The scripture is clear that men act volitionally. Um, yet, their volition is not what I call determinable. Meaning, your volition does not determine whether you become a true believer or not. God's does. And, and John writes that in clear, clear detail in his gospel and yet men tend to want to say um, you know God is for you Satan is against you so you get to cast the final vote and it doesn't work that way that is not according to the scriptures the scriptures are that men believe in God because God pours out his grace and gives them the knowledge and the belief to be able to trust Christ as their Savior. That's what the scriptures teach. I think that's part of the point here is Nebuchadnezzar had the knowledge. I mean, look at what he witnessed. Oh, yeah, how, he didn't have the belief and kept making himself God over the very God that was the only Yeah, and, and Nebuchadnezzar refuses to bow to the one true God at this point because he's been steeped in idolatry his whole life and because God has not yet poured out his grace on him, that he will understand and he will believe, and ultimately that he'll be humble instead of prideful. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar is still very prideful. He gets it right twice. He calls God who he truly is, the God above all gods, the most high God. He gets it right, and yet he doesn't trust him. Yeah. Where he's stealing the glory of God. That's that's the that's the step that sends him to the past. Yeah, and, and we'll see that in chapter four. The chapter four is all about Nebuchadnezzar's pride being broken and him being humbled. And he does come out of chapter four as a humble as a humble king. 
Um, so we'll see that in the next chapter. But at this point, not so much. Not so much. Now notice that all these other, the accusers and all the other leaders gather around and they do an inspection of the guys who've been into the furnace. And in their inspection of them, they find four things to be true. The first is that their bodies were not harmed, even though they were in the hottest fire that had ever been put into the furnace. So they're not harmed at all. Matter of fact, their clothes are not burned at all. And then their hair isn't singed. And finally, they don't even smell like fire. You know, all you got to do is get close to a fire, right? And you, you reek of what that fire smelled like. And these guys don't, I mean, they've been in the furnace where the fire burns, and they don't even smell like fire. So you have to believe all these, certainly their accusers. How do you think their accusers feel now? That they had them thrown into the fire as they desired, and they walked out of the fire, and they don't even smell like they've been in the fire. I don't think anybody's going to accuse these three again. And um, so, I mean, this is the miracle of God. Uh, there is no other explanation. You know, most liberal scholars will say, well, this isn't a miracle. This didn't really happen. This is just a fable. And I don't think so. I think Daniel's writing about two experiences that actually happened in which they could have easily been killed, and yet God preserved their lives. And I think he has a purpose in that, and we'll see that in chapter 4. I mean, clearly God always does things for his purpose, but um, I think he preserves these four men for a specific purpose. Um, certainly Daniel... This is the last, by the way, that we see of these three men. Not again mentioned. Um, you assume that they ruled over the prince of Babylon into their, you know, they became old men and died of a natural death. Um, and uh, Daniel lives a very long time. Um, certainly well beyond 70, probably up to 90 years old. So he lives a long time. These other men, probably not. But um, so you can only imagine the response of all these officials because, I mean, they had done away with the three guys who had been elevated above them. And so they thought. And now these three guys are not done away with. So they have to be shocked and surprised. They hear the words of Nebuchadnezzar, who gets it right and calls them the servants of the Most High God. And Nebuchadnezzar goes on. That's not enough for him. So you, you know that he clearly understands. I mean, he'll say it. These guys defied me because of their trust in God. And so in response, their God saved them. Look at what he says in 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. I mean, he clearly 
understands what has happened. That the reason they violated his command is because that would have been disservice to their God. He understands that, that that's why they defied him. And then he understands that God, in his sovereignty, has saved them from the king's command to be killed. So although he tried to kill them, he couldn't, because their God is the God of kings. He can do more than Nebuchadnezzar can. And so Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, gets it so right here. And, and, but this is like knowledge without belief, right? You can understand what the scriptures say. You can study them. You can comprehend it all. You can even uh, regurgitate it back of what they speak and be right. But that's not salvation. That's knowledge. That's understanding, but it's not salvation. Yeah, to brainwash them away from their true God. And because these three guys were faithful from the beginning and held on to what they had learned under King Josiah, then God uses them to influence the Babylonian kingdom. And how important is Israel to God? Yeah. Yeah, God, this is the remnant, by the way. <laughs> these four guys are part of the remnant that lived on and were the true believers in God um, while all of their contemporaries apparently um, bowed their knee to the golden image because none of them are accused, just these three guys. So, and, and again, I'll say it again, I believe that Daniel stood with them. Just nobody was willing to challenge Daniel and so they don't accuse him. Because um, Daniel certainly would not have bowed, and Daniel certainly would have been there because all the important people were there, and he, by the way, is the ruler of Babylonia, which is where the king is. So there were four Israelites. Yeah, I think there were. I mean, Daniel certainly would not have bowed his knee to this image, and he certainly would have been there because he's the leader of leaders in the kingdom of Babylon. I mean, no one's above him except for Nebuchadnezzar. And then look at what Nebuchadnezzar then says, makes a decree. Look at this crazy decree of an of a idol-worshiping king. Therefore, I make a decree, verse 29, that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. He couldn't have gotten any more right. I mean, he clearly understands everything that has just happened. And it must be Nebuchadnezzar's favorite way to punish people is to tear them limb from limb and make their houses a rubbish heap. So if you even speak against the God of these Hebrews, you're gonna be killed and all your family's gonna be killed and your house is gonna be made of rubbish heap. Really, this is Babylon, the idol-worshiping kingdom 
remains idol worshiping, and yet you can't speak a word against the, king, the God of these Hebrews. If you do, you're going to be killed. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. So he's, he's understanding. I mean, he gets it right. He even punishes people who speak against this God. But that doesn't mean he believes and he has faith in this God or he trusts him. He just recognizes who he is. So, and then, of course, he, then the king calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. So now are they not only the rulers, they're the rich rulers of Babylon, along with Daniel, who Nebuchadnezzar poured out gifts and caused him to prosper. So now these four guys that they've tried to do away with have been elevated even higher. So nobody, again, is going to challenge these, these four men. I mean, no way. Nebuchadnezzar is blessing them and pouring out blessings on them, praising their God. You're not going to challenge these guys again because you'll be thrown into the fire if you do. You can bet there was serious oh, yeah. I mean, I think they already hated them before this, which is why they accused them. But now it's even higher. Right. Yeah, and, and I mean, what are you going to do with these guys? <laughs> Nothing. You don't ever challenge them again. And that's what I think leads into chapter 4, um, that when uh, chapter 4 happens and Nebuchadnezzar goes insane for a period of time, that these are the four guys who rule the kingdom because nobody is willing to challenge them. And by the way, Daniel says in seven years he's coming back. And so they know that he knows what he's talking about. So if you challenge these guys during those seven years, probably at the end of the seven years, it's not going to go well for you. So I don't think anybody challenges them during that time. But we'll look at that when we get to chapter 4. So thanks for your time this morning.